0: As hell and i wanna get Ill. so i go to a place where my chill Bella's out there trying to make that dollar I pulled up
1: in the all right everyone welcome back to another episode of the board as hell podcast i'm adam mcdonald with big shiny robot and i am andy wilson aka citizen bot also from big shiny robot
0: and you know what there really isn't too much to talk about in the way of big release movies because the whole theater movie thing for the week took a big fart and came out with Allegiant, which um, is basically the third of four movies in the Hunger Games ripoff that no one really gives a damn about. Oh, um, there's another one? There's another one after this? Oh, yeah, they're, they're doing the whole Harry Potter, uh, Mockingjay, let's take the second book and split it in two
1: because Lionsgate needs money. Um, wow. They so must ma- want to be hard up because, man, Allegiant, like... I, I, mean, I'm not going to re- review a movie that I haven't seen. But the last movie in this series, the singular high point in it was uh, the crowd is rolling. Well, no, seeing Jai Courtney get shot in the face. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I was, I almost like stood up and cheered in like the mostly empty theater when when I saw that. I just. You know, it was kind of a cool concept—the whole divergent thing—and then I, I, I don't know. I just completely lost interest in it. And it still got Miles Teller in it. Maybe if if I knew Miles Teller was going to get shot in the face, oh, I'd be first. I'd be first in line. I would. I would say maybe ten times. Okay. Oh,
0: but I want yeah. like be shooting the face, not like off camera. I want to see his face implode. <laughs> God, I hate him. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so Allegiant was kind of a heart noise from what we've heard. Um, there's much better things out there to see. But, Andy, you were still at South by Southwest, so talk to us about some of the cool stuff you saw.
1: Yeah, they didn't even bother screening Allegiant here at all. <laughs> no critic was going to come see it. I mean, maybe they did. They just didn't invite any of us because uh, we were seeing good movies. I want to talk about uh, two of the best films that I saw Uh, The first one is called In a Valley of Violence. This is a straight-up Western uh, starring Ethan Hawke, uh, made by Ty West, who some people may know uh, from some of his other movies. He mostly does horror films uh, and is known for working with Joe Swanberg and and some of the other kind of mumblecore folks. Adam, I I think you um, you saw... VHS, and he did, mm-hmm. uh, he did the short in their second honeymoon.
0: Yeah. And I wasn't a big fan of that short, but it wasn't because it was, it was directed very well. It just, it wasn't my, my type of horror. So,
1: yeah. So this, this is definitely a departure from that, from that horror genre. Instead, like I said, this is a straight up Western. And we talked about how much we liked Westerns when we talked about the hateful eight, Uh Ethan Hawke here plays the prototypical man with no name running from his past uh, who shows up in a town and he's just passing through and then what happens well the the big guy in town decides I'm going to pick a fight with this guy and it ends badly for said guy the so deputy marshals and that his daddy is the town marshal played by John Travolta and this is just John Travolta to the nines uh, you know overacting but having a lot of fun with it well that's what he says too yeah exactly so it's, it's really a lot of fun and that should tell you a little bit about where the director's sensibilities are with this uh, so it's a little bit over the top it's a little bit funny and so John Travolta's like, well, I can tell who you are. You're ex-Cavalry, and I don't want to mess with you. I don't want to bring the feds into my nice little town that I've got my thumb on. So you leave town, and I don't ever see you again, and we'll forget this whole thing happens. Huh. Well, um, he get Ethan Hawke leaves town, and what should happen? But the guy he beat up and his three dumb friends go and beat him up and do other terrible stuff to him and uh, he swears revenge and comes back into town to kill all of them so huh. yeah, this is I mean, it, that's like your great western plot right? Uh, so uh, a couple of other great things about this film, first of all there is a really cute dog in it, I I, mean, I know that's <laughs> Uh, but if you remember a couple of years ago the artist which won a bunch of Academy Awards and it had that really really cute dog yeah this the same trainer who did uh, who trained this dog very very uh, just adorable so uh throughout the throughout the film Ethan Hawk is like talking to his dog and it's like I know I said I wasn't gonna kill people but maybe I have to I have to break that. That promise to you, I'm sorry. And uh, <laughs> the people keep asking, well, does the dog do tricks? And he's like, she bites. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really, just, yeah, the dog is what makes this movie. The other thing that makes this movie, there are, uh, there are a couple of really meaty parts in here for for two women. The first is played by Karen Gillan, who you may remember from doctor who and guardians of, the galaxy. guardians of the galaxy and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, she plays, uh, she and her sister run the town hotel and she is also a fiance of the Marshall son who gets beat up by Ethan Hawke. Uh, and, and so she's got all sorts of sympathies and, um, uh, she's kind of a bitch, which is a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and she's she's really high maintenance and uh, just, again, just like Travolta, she's kind of playing this to the ninth and, and having a lot of fun. And then she's got a little sister who maybe is a little bit sweet on Ethan Hawke and maybe is going to help him on his way. Uh, so there's some family drama and some tension uh, between them and uh, just... Great roles, uh, you know. Usually, the the female parts in westerns are, you know, mostly damsels or, or other things. Uh, there's some there's some actual meat here, which is which is a lot of fun. But overall, this is, I mean, this is just your prototypical western, uh, played with a lot of kind of modern sensibilities. Um, like the title would suggest, this is pretty violent. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. It is pretty bloody, although not overly gory. Um, but this is definitely R-rated. Uh, what I was surprised at was how funny it was. Um, just a lot of interjection of, of jokes here and there and little moments of levity that helped break up the tension. And uh, that was a lot of fun. So I really love this uh, 8.5 out of 10. It looks like people will get to see this sometime in September. So put that on your calendars, and and hopefully we all get to see In a Valley of Violence soon.
0: It sounds kind of like, uh, I mean, a different storyline as far as revenge versus you know trying to go find the person you love. But uh, there was a movie I saw last uh, Sundance we talked about it was Slow West, mm-hmm. and it was a great you know very straightforward uh, western, but at the same time like this one you said had had really cool little moments of humor that ran through it and levity and again, little things that kind of broke up the tension that you, I remember I was sitting there watching it with our friend Brooks and we had to look at each other, like laughing, like what is this, is this happening? Like what's going on? Like, but it was in a good way where it wasn't like over the top stupid. It was just, you know, something fun that, you know, made you laugh in between people getting shot or heartbreaking sadness.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this was, this was a lot of fun and they played it all in this tiny little town that they built out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, this It was just great. Um, I had a lot of fun with that. What I also had a lot of fun with uh, is a film called Slash. Uh, this is about the world of slash fiction, which if... Uh, Snary! <laughs> uh, slash fiction is a very specific type of fan fiction. It's naughty. Uh, it, is, it is very naughty. So fan fiction... For those who, who do not know, are people take their favorite uh, movies, books, etc., and they write their own stories about it? It's
0: basically where uh, Twilight
1: came from. Uh, Twilight and uh, Twilight, and then Fifty, 50 Shades. Shades. Is great,
0: yeah.
1: yeah. So yeah, Fifty Shades started off as as a erotic fan fiction uh, about what what was going on with Bella and Edward. And then she went and changed the names to whatever the characters' names were in Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, Grey and Anastasia. Oh, I can't believe I remember that. Oh, I was going to
0: say Tits McGee, but that was just me.
1: <laughs> there you go. Anyway, um, Slash Slashfic is uh, e- an even smaller segment of that erotic fanfiction thing where it specifically often focuses on gay characters and uh, putting characters together who are oftentimes uh, antagonists towards one another. And, um, you know, having them go at it. You know, hey, that floats your boat, that's great. So (laughs) this this delves into the world of, um, of slash fiction through the eyes of a couple of teenagers who are both in high school, we have Neil, was 15 years old and Neil is at a very tender age where um, he doesn't really know where he fits on the spectrum of sexuality he thinks he might be gay everyone picks on him for being gay supposedly and he spends all of his time writing erotica about his favorite movie Vanguard uh, which is uh, an outer space epic adventure and um, w- some of the funniest parts of this is we actually get to see the, the stories that he's writing in outer space and they're, they're made like the worst porn possible it's <laughs> really really funny and, and played for laughs and it's very even though that, that sounds very adult and it is it's played for laughs, and it's it's actually really sweet and tender. And that's actually where most of this movie goes with their content. Uh, so one day at school, he gets his notebook where he writes all of his stories uh, stolen. And uh, one of his classmates named Julia gets it passed to her and is like, you guys are dicks, and calls everyone out on it. And gives it back to him, and she says, "Hey, you know what? Your stuff's actually pretty good. You should, you should publish it." And he's like, "Well, where would I publish it?" And she shows him a website called The Rabbit's Hole, and uh, they they metaphorically go together down this rabbit's hole where she has been publishing some of her own erotic fanfic, and um, the two of them kind of get close to one another and they're friends. There's maybe some attraction there. Uh, and she's like, well, I'm bi. And he's like, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm bi too. Maybe, maybe I kind of like this girl. I don't know. Um, the best part of this story is actually the interplay between these two characters and this, this coming of age and him trying to figure out who he is in the whole world. This all culminates in the two of them saying, well, we're going to go to Comic-Con together and go meet up with a, a group of people doing, doing a slash fic open reading. The problem is they're both underage. They both lied about their age to get into the group. Um, but they've both been invited to do live readings of their work. And they're like, well, we both look like we're 15 and 16. So there's no way that they'll actually let us do it. But there's this expectation that we show up. So, uh, throw that in there on, on top of that, one of the moderators of the group played by Michael Ian black is really into young Neil, And, uh, you know, keep sending him explicit text messages and things. And so he's kind of freaked out about all of this. And of course, you know, Michael Ian Black doesn't know that this kid is 15. Uh, he right. said he was 18. So um, it, it, there's a little bit of a, a creepy factor going on. But Neil's like, well, you know, if I am gay, then I kind of like this guy. He seems to get me, he seems to get my writing so hijinks into, and i'll just say that it never crosses a line into being uh, distasteful or gross a lot of the the more erotic parts of this are are played for for laughs and for fun and um mostly this is just a a really nice coming of age story uh, the only problem i i kind of have is Julia falls a little bit into the manic pixie dream girl sort of sort of realm, Um, Mm -hmm. but she almost doesn't. She's actually very uh, well fleshed out. In some ways, the character of Julia is better developed uh, than the character of Neil. Uh, She, unlike your normal manic pixie dream girl, uh, she's not an idealized girl. She has a lot of problems. Um, She breaks Neil's heart kind of over and over again by being really aloof, being uncaring, lying to him. And so I'm going to forgive it that, even though that, that came up. Uh, The other final thing I have to say about this is I, I conducted a little bit of a social experiment uh, where I took my brother to go see this. And my brother is not, a nerd he, <laughs> uh, he is a you know he is a pedestrian uh he's a civilian uh he he likes a lot of the nerdy stuff like he liked going to see star wars and had a good time uh but i felt like he was a good barometer of like it, if even if you're not into all this nerdy stuff the same way that you and i are adam right like can you Can you identify with this and and can you enjoy it? And does it make sense to you? He loved it. He had a great time with it. And uh, so I think that's a good barometer that if you can laugh at erotic slash fiction, then you're going to have a good time with this movie. If that sounds like that content is maybe a little bit too sexual for you, then maybe that's not for you. Uh, I should mention this is from writer and director Cray Liford, uh, who did one of my other favorite movies from South by Southwest three years ago called Zero Charisma, which was Mm -hmm. about uh, tabletop gaming in Dungeons and Dragons. So this is yet another film in that same vein. Uh, This is is in many ways even better. Uh, Done with a better budget, obviously he has... Real named actors like Michael Ian Black and uh, the um, the two the two leads. Michael Johnston is on Teen Wolf, and Hannah Marks is on another uh, MTV show, and I think she was in SLC Punk 2. Um, Boop. So yeah. Well. But, uh, but these are actually named actors instead of like, oh, these are a bunch of people I know around Austin who will Oh, be- like an <laughs>
0: not <Disney? laughs> uh,
1: which, which was what Zero Charisma was. Um, that was ultra low budget. This is still indie low budget. Uh, it was made with a Kickstarter. Um, but, uh, you know, a great indie film if you are into this stuff. Um, hopefully this ends up on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that soon. <laughs> We can all check it out. Uh, I'll give this also an 8.5 out of 10.
0: Well, yeah, when, when you were talking about it, too, I was just online, kind of looking around and reading about it. And yeah, it's, just, um, it's getting a lot of popular buzz. It was a big hit, like you mentioned, in the South by Southwest. So
1: it sounds like something kind of fun and interesting to see. <laughs> this is the first place it's shown, so hopefully it gets it gets picked up somewhere. Fingers crossed. I really yeah. it. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of gay stuff,
0: uh, <laughs> uh, like I said, there, were, there weren't really any movies we went and saw, but uh, I was sent a screener of a movie called You're Killing Me, which is trying to play itself off as a gay American psycho meets Dexter, I guess would be the kind of the best way to describe it. Um, again, it's a very, very small indie film uh, made with a bunch of nobodies no one's ever heard of. In fact, I went to IMDb to look people up, and um, this was pretty much the only thing they'd ever been in. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, I was I was kind of excited to see it. I, I like horror movies a lot. Uh, my husband likes them a lot, so we sat down to watch it. Uh, and basically, it's a story of this guy named George. He's a very self-absorbed, uh, vapid YouTuber who's trying to go viral and make a name for himself with his friends. And he ends up meeting this kind of monotone, very introverted guy named Joe, and they start dating. We well, come to find out there's been some problems with Joe. Joe's spent a lot of his time at a mental institution. Uh, kind of when he was a kid, he was the stereotypical, you know, murder small animals and stuff them kind of thing that many serial killers do. Well, the two meet, start going out, and George brings Joe out of his shell. And Joe decides that he's going to act on his murderous impulses and start killing people. And the first people he turns to are those in their group of friends. The thing is, though is that every single time he goes and kills someone, randomly, George will call him and be like, hey, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I just murdered so-and-so. And the character, George, is so into himself and just so unaware of what's going on around him. He's always like, oh, you're so funny. That's cute when you say things like that. And he's like, no, really, I just stabbed her in the throat. Oh, yeah, sure. And that's kind of the movie until the very, very end when they finally realize, like, oh, he is murdering people. Um, and then have to decide, well, do we turn them into the cops? Do I run away with them and help them kill people? Um, or what? And <sighs> the idea is interesting and it could have been done well. However, the script is so bad and so horrible that it's like halfway through out to Eddie and I was like, what the hell are we watching? This makes no sense. It's stupid. It's ignorant and it's just, Ugh. And then our roommate came out, and he was like, what are you guys watching? And we told him, so he sat down to watch the last half of it. And within 20 minutes, even he was like, what the hell is this? This is horrible. You know, the actors themselves do a decent job as far as portraying the roles they're stuck with. Um, I wouldn't blame them, except for the fact that the guy who plays George wrote the script. There's just no redeeming value. I mean, it's got flashbacks and, like, uh, kind of quick shots of Joe, the killer, recovered in blood and doing gross things, kind of like with American Psycho. And like I said at the beginning, it's trying really hard to be that type of movie and just fails miserably. I mean, the only good thing I can say about it is the actor who plays Joe uh, does a decent job and he might go somewhere, you know, uh, and it's got some okay special effects for, you know, the stabbing scenes and the blood packs and everything. But uh, just, I, it's apparently winning all kinds of awards at LGBT film festivals and um, other things. And I don't know how it's, it's just bad. I mean, it won best script at, uh, New Orleans Horror Festival. This script is a piece of crap. Uh, the best I can do is a two out of ten. But do not see this movie. If anyone's like, "Oh, hey, have you heard about this?" Just tell them to go watch Hellbent or some other campy gay horror movie. This one, this
1: is not for them. Wow. So I, I think the lesson is, if this script can win best script somewhere, then if you're working on a screenplay for a horror film. You can you can chase that dream, and you too can win uh, a best script because uh, yeah, that that does not sound impressive.
0: No, and I like is the the whole thing they're trying to pull off is that you know their little group of friends when they get together they're really bitchy and snipey at each other, and it like trust me like our, our group of friends we're pretty bitchy and snipey when we want to be when we're having fun with it, but we're smart and this is just dumb as hell. Uh, so yeah, it's. It, it's not worth the ninety minutes to live through and then be like that was a piece of crap. Just just go do something else. It, it's not worth your time.
1: Wow, um, I will I will avoid that
0: then. Well, <laughs> it's not really it's not really up your alley either. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I'm, think it's a genre of film that you specifically seek out.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not I'm not a, that much into uh, murder horror films, but you're with, making, with a gay twist. Yeah, <laughs> hey. <laughs> Twist actually makes it sound interesting. I'll be like, okay, I'll check that out.
0: Oh, uh, yeah, it, it's it's by Wolf Studios who does a lot of LGBT film, and this is the problem I have with it. It's like much the same as you've seen, I'm sure, with LDS film. Uh. Was there a, was a time there where it was almost like it was like LDS and gay exploitation films, kind of like how we had in the '70s with the black exploitation, where they were putting films out a dime a dozen just because they knew because it was had no. LDS character had a black character had a gay character. People would go see it because you know there was nothing out there. Um, Twenty years ago, that would have been true, but nowadays, you know, all these genres of film have matured so much, and we're getting um, like the movie Weekend, which the very first time it ever even came out on Blu-ray was a Criterion. So you know, we're getting films that are actually well-made, well-acted, uh, and well-written that we don't kind of need to fall back in this exploitation type films and yes campy horror films are always a fun thing but there's a line between camp
1: and retarded <laughs> so <laughs> well uh that brings us to one of the reasons why the box office is so slow this week is everybody is running away from batman v superman they're scared. They are scared, and and I hope, rightfully so. I hope that we're in for uh, a cinematic treat. Uh, the Batman and Superman franchises, however, have kind of an uneven track record. Uh, you've, got, you've got your Batman and Robin, you've got your Superman Four Quest for Peace, um, but then you've got your uh, Dark Knight and uh, and your uh, and your Man of Steel and your other good films. So, uh, we thought we'd talk about two of our favorite Batman or Superman films that mm-hmm. you should check out in, uh, in starting or in getting ready to watch, uh, Batman v Superman. Uh, do you want to go first? Do you want me to go first? Sure. So yeah, we,
0: um, we were talking the other night cause we're like, crap, there was like nothing to review this week. So we talked about doing what we just talked about and then, you know, something to kind of dive into at the end. And so we, hey batman superman and honestly I'm, I'm more of a batman fan so that's the route i was going to go and the first thing that popped in my mind was the dark knight because the dark knight is you know one of my favorite batman films and keith ledger gives the performance of his lifetime as the joker but then you know, i was sitting and i was taking a shower and you know the shower thoughts get going and i was like but christian bale wasn't my batman and i was thinking well which one is and so I was kind of going through all the different actors, and then it, it popped my mind that, you know, of all the people we've had who's portrayed him, I think Kevin Conroy, who was the voice of Batman in the animated series, was the best. I'm like, oh crap, they didn't do an animated series move. Oh, wait, they did. Uh, back in 1993, so 23 years ago, <laughs> which is hard to believe. Uh, I
1: can't believe that. That's insane.
0: Right? But- I, I looked it up on IMDb and I was like, oh my God, it was that long ago. Uh, yeah. Batman: Mask of the Phantasm came out in the theaters, and so that fits the bill. Uh, you know, I'm not going to dive into all the plot details. I'm sure, you know, many of you have seen it, but it's about, um, you know, that, there's this new killer comes to town called the Phantasm. It's this creature dressed like in a almost like a death face cowl that starts killing off mob members, and Batman tries to go stop this person because you know his the rule is you don't kill people. You you know, arrest him and throw him in jail and then go to Arkham, whatever it is. But this person obviously has a vendetta against the mob and so the mob turns to the most dangerous person they possibly can do, go to, which is the Joker, who is voiced by Mark Hamill, which as much as I love Heath Ledger as the Joker, Mark Hamill he, again, he just he's uh, my Joker as well. So it's got my like, two favorite characters um, voiced by my two favorite actors for that uh, and of course that sets up a whole whirlwind of crap, but What's so cool about this was just how intricately... uh, And this is before the whole DC animation took off, which is very popular nowadays and do a great job with all their stuff. But it intricately wove Batman, Bruce Wayne, the Joker, Commissioner Gordon, and um, this old flame that Bruce Wayne had. All their lives get intertwined so well, and every single little action and reaction reverberates so perfectly with Bruce Wayne's life. And then what happens with Batman, and then You know everything. Um, It's done so well that I haven't seen it. Haven't seen that in a movie in a long time. Even with your most intricate Tarantino movie, you don't see that much plot and characters intertwined. But yeah, it's it's fantastically well done. It actually flopped the box office, and of course, it's made its money back over the years with you know VHS and DVD release. But this is a film a lot of people haven't really heard about, maybe because they were too young, or maybe they weren't even born when this movie came out. But if you're a fan of Batman and you love the animated series, you do yourself a favor, go out and find this. I'm sure it's
1: on Netflix, or you can get on Amazon for like five bucks. Yeah, it's so weird, though, because if you think about it, this was like 1993. I mean, at the same time, we had Tim Burton making Batman movies. Like, Batman Returns had just come out like oh, yeah. a year or two earlier. This was, you know, so I think it was just people... Like saw this as like oh there's a cartoon Batman movie like what is that like why would there be a cartoon Batman movie like Michael Keaton is Batman and and that's what I'm expecting to see so yeah I think I think people just I think it was not put out there well but if you look back at this I mean Paul Dini and Bruce Tim and you know I'm I'm really not trying to slight Tim Burton or Christopher Nolan. But for my money, those guys did it better. The animated film did it better, and yeah, and Kevin Conroy is my Batman, and Mark Hamill is my Joker. Like I, I just, I think that there's a certain segment of people where you mention Mark Hamill as the Joker, and people just like freak out because we we all know how good that is, and. And there's something magical that they that they captured in *Mask of the Phantasm* and and that they captured in, in a lot of other elements in the uh, in the DC animated universe that just hasn't been put on film elsewhere.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and Batman the animated series have been going on for well over a year at this point. Um, and I remember as a kid rushing home from school just to wait for it was, you know, as a young teenager, kind of my you know, afternoon cartoon show because it was so well done and it really presented Batman, you know, it was it was safe for kids where it wasn't, you know, I mean, yeah, there was punching, kicking and, you know, madness going on, but it wasn't over-the-top gory or bloody or frightening, but at the same time, they did the stories justice and really presented Batman in a way I'd never seen before because, yeah, like, we had the Burton ones and, you know, Tim Burton has a very, very distinct film style He's one of the few. There's a few directors out there you can like watch five minutes of their movies and be like, "Oh, that's so and so because of this or that," um, and yeah. that's something we can definitely say about Burton. But he also, with more so of like Batman Returns than the original, kind of went with the camp scene, and yeah. you know, it made it fun, and that's that's great. I mean, I love those movies, uh, but this was almost a truer representation of the character, um, and it's it, for my money, it's 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 the best Batman movie they've made. Uh, so if you haven't seen it, please go check it out. It's it's really great. It is PG-13, so if you have younger kids, there's nothing really bad in it. I mean, there's a little bit of blood, but nothing too crazy. But there are some scary scenes, but it's...
1: Adult uh, themes.
0: Yeah, <laughs> adult themes. But it, it's, it's great, and everyone owes this to themselves to so go see it again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh... I have kind of an interesting take on, on this. It, it's funny, you mentioned, like, I've always been kind of a Batman guy, so you went with Mask of the Phantasm. I've always been kind of a Superman guy. So, when I tried to think about what is my Superman movie, uh, I was like, well, Superman 2.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, but Superman 2 is kind of a train wreck if you actually, if you actually watch it. It was always my favorite growing up. Um, But one of the reasons that Superman 2 is the way that it is is that Richard Donner, who did the first Superman movie, had this, like, four-hour film plotted out. And the studio was like, you can't do this. And he's like, screw it, I'm doing it anyway. So two-thirds of the way through production... Uh, they kind of shut him down and said, okay, you have to cut this down to a single film. And, uh, And so we got the first Superman movie. And he had all of this other stuff left over with General Zod and Superman deciding to lose his powers and so on and so forth. And so you had like half of a movie out there.
0: Yeah.
1: And they fired Richard Donner, didn't want him to finish it, Uh, And they brought in Richard Lester, who uh, is best known for directing the Beatles movie, A Hard Day's Night, which I absolutely love. I love that movie. But so he had to come in and make the rest of this movie, which included the bits where Lois and Clark go up to Niagara Falls. And uh, they they brought back um, God and. And the two henchmen and like had them like fight against a bunch of army people in a small town uh and uh when you look at it you can see what Donner did and what Lester did and they really don't mesh well together so um what my actual recommendation is uh which you can you can go out and you can you can get from Amazon is Superman the Donner cut mm-hmm. is he takes all of the original stuff from uh, Superman 1 and Superman 2 that Richard Donner did and put them together into a single film yes it's very long um, but it makes a cohesive whole in the way that neither Superman 1 nor Superman 2 ever felt like they did And so I think it's worth checking out, especially if like me, you grew up like knowing them as two different films and, uh, and can kind of see where the problems are in each of them. Uh, I think it's much more interesting. And then you also look at it and you say, there was no way this could ever get released in the theater. You know, maybe today they could have done a, um, They could have done, you know, like we said, with with an Allegiant or a Mockingjay and been like, okay, this is Richard Donner's Superman Part 1 and Part 2 and they're released like a year apart from one another. Uh, Do like they did with The Hobbit or something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, They might have been able to get away with that and and come up with that idea from the beginning. So uh, the Donner movie is, or the Donner cut is interesting to look at and I, I recommend people go and check that out. Yeah, I remember I saw um,
0: and I was very, very <clears throat> unaware of the story behind, you know, everything that happened with Superman 2 and the Donner being kicked off the set, pretty much. Um, so I saw it years and years and years ago. When it first came out, it was like a big deal. I was like, oh, well, I'll go see this. Um, and I wasn't really a big fan, but I want to go back and revisit it because now that I kind of know where everything's coming from, it would make a lot more sense. But I do know that, uh, you know, the, the Lester cut was... You know, some of the things i I've, my problem with Superman too. That's always been kind of a bug to me was that certain scenes that were supposed to be you know very climactic or very tense or um, you know perilous. Yeah, I don't know if it was his choice or what happened with it, but it was it was played for comedy. Yeah, um, like I remember there's the scene when you know the the Kryptonians are attacking New York or wherever city it was, and the guys are blowing really hard, like knocking things over. But then like it blows the guys to pay off. And it's like, really, that's supposed to be menacing. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah, there. That's I've got some problems with it. You know, that I, version I think,
1: of the movie. Yeah, I think. I mean, that kind of reflected where Hollywood action movies, big budget action movies, were at this time. Because you look at the James Bond films of the same era, and they did the same thing. They went for the camp. They went for the the jokes and the laughs when it should have just been an action sequence. And it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I Again, I feel bad ripping on Richard Lester, but those things might have been interesting in their own film that's able to do a campy Superman, uh, but they just did not work here. When you actually have a, a fairly serious film going on, uh, and... And a lot of what I think of as being like the iconic Superman stuff. Like, as a kid, I didn't even know about Superman One. I only know I only knew Superman Two. I knew Neil before Zod. Like that was my. Yeah. And uh, you know, I didn't even know about like, oh, I'm I'm gonna save Metropolis from a helicopter falling and. Uh, Superman being mopey out on out on the farm in Smallville for an hour before. <laughs> Man, that movie takes forever to get started. <clears throat> wow. Anyway, um, so I, I think I think that's interesting. Oh, and one other interesting thing about the Donner cut is in uh, Super, Superman Returns, uh, they they brought back some footage that. Donner had shot with uh, uh, Marlon Brando as Jor-El and used that in in the film. Uh, originally in Superman 2, uh, Superman was supposed to speak to his father Jor-El and, and be like, oh, well, I'm thinking of giving up my powers and, and so on and so forth, and there was going to be a back and forth with Marlon Brando. Um, but Marlon Brando was only... Uh, under contract to be in the first movie, so they had all of this unused footage, and they couldn't get him back for the second one. So instead, they got the the actress who played Superman's mother to come in and give a similar but different uh, bit of dialogue in the Fortress of Solitude. So interesting that uh, Brian Singer was able to then use some of that footage and and bring it back in. Another um, not as good entry into the Superman. Uh, I will story. never, I
0: will never forgive that movie because it's because of Superman Returns that we got the Brett Ratner X three and destroyed the Phoenix. So I'll never ever <laughs> forgive Superman Returns for messing uh, up my favorite X Men ever.
1: <laughs> yeah, they that was like a, a bad point in time where everybody made very bad decisions and. Brian Singer left X Men to make a bad X Men movie and Brett Ratner made a very bad X Men movie. Uh, would would that we would have just left Good Enough Alone and Brian Singer would have continued on with X Men and then maybe could have done a better Superman movie at a different point in time.
0: We got that. It was called Man of Steel.
1: <laughs> well, that's a conversation for another day.
0: I, no, I don't, don't, don't. you dare pull a Ryan Young on me. <laughs> no, I,
1: okay, I don't. I don't dislike Man of Steel, but it's interesting that like there are specific things that I like about Man of Steel and things that I don't. The major problem I have with Man of Steel is I just I feel like Michael Shannon as Zod, while he did a very good job. I just didn't care as much about him as I did as Zod in Superman Two, and I felt like they brought Zod back simply because Terrence Stamp was so iconic, and so they're like, "Oh, we have to have Zod in this movie." And instead of having a you know a something else that made a bit more sense, um, I felt that they didn't earn that; that they made it too dark too quickly. Um, That being said, I love like the origin parts of the story and all of the stuff with like Ma and Pa Kent and and all of that. Um, I love the Perry White stuff. I love the Metropolis stuff. I love the Amy Adams stuff. I just wish they would have gone a different way than using Zod and like forcing Superman to like make that ultimate choice to kill someone in the first movie of the reboot. I, I would have liked for him to be the happy hero at the end of the film rather than be a little bit tortured.
0: I would like, say it. was his first day as Superman. <laughs> he, yeah. He was doing stuff, so that's why he did the whole, like, well, you know, the, when you have no choice but to, you know, there's when I was in philosophy class in college, there was a really great um, kind of riddle our professor gave us was, you know, you're standing at a train track and right where it bridges – You know, you can, um, the runaway train is going barreling down the track. And if it keeps on going straight, there's five people tied on the track. And you're next to a lever that can switch it to a different track. But if you don't pull the lever, it's going to barrel through and kill five people. However, if you do pull the lever, it's going to veer off to the left. And on the left train track, there's one person tied up. So you literally have the choice of doing nothing, letting it kill five people, or pulling the lever and then actively causing the death of one person you know what do you do and it, it's a it's a no-win answer but you know most everyone in the class said they'd pull the lever because one person dying it's better than five people dying so kind of i'm looking at the scene at the end where he kills zod spoiler alert if you haven't seen it which you yeah should. No. um it's like yeah would you kill one or let him kill a family of five
1: yeah no i'm not i'm not saying that he didn't make the wrong i think Superman made the right decision. He made the Superman-esque decision. Uh, Superman does kill people when he has to. It's just, I I would have liked to have kept him more pristine uh, and, I don't know, like I said, the the happy hero, the big blue Boy Scout, because that would have made him even more interesting in going up against Batman now we have a reason for Batman to have a real beef with him. It's like, Hey, here's this Kryptonian who is willing to kill people if they get in his way and he destroyed half a city or the, the throwdown that he was involved in destroyed half. a Right. So, you know, I, I, I think that's an interesting thing, but it would have been even more interesting if, um batman was basically just like well i don't trust this guy because he's he's kind of a patsy he's kind of a douche um and and what you know i'm listening to myself and i'm like no you know what this is better Um, (laughs) (laughs) for batman to be like worried about him because he is an actual threat that actually is a better storyline so shut my mouth um (laughs) this sets up the movie better I just, you know, I like I like my Superman um, light and and happy, uh, even though he he is kind of a tortured character. So, um, well, you can
0: you can blame the Dark the Dark Knight series for that because that's kind of sparked up the whole dark brooding. You know, our our superheroes have to be depressed and rah, 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 rah. like no, you can have. I mean, look at Daredevil. You can have a character that's really happy and lighthearted and still have dark moments in it but you can, yeah. you can balance the two. And yeah, when it came out of Man of Steel, when the movie was over, it was almost like a relief because it was just so much and so intense and there was no levity. And some films need that. And you know, I, I love Man of Steel for what it did, but at the same time, it would have been nice to have a chuckle every now and then just because it releases that tension that you're holding in. and So it, again, not a perfect movie. Uh, I do enjoy it a lot,
1: but it, uh, it should definitely set the stage for Batman v Superman. Uh, which we'll be seen shortly. and And hey, you know what? among all of the Superman movies, about half of them are good and half of them are bad. Man of Steel is in the good category. I, I it's not a bad move. It's not a bad Superman movie and it's not a bad movie. I just you know, it it's not exactly how I would have done it. It's like it's like if you go in and you have a really great steak and it's seasoned like a little bit differently than you would have liked but it's still really good. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So anyways, uh, that's, that's this week. I had, I said all about next week is Batman v Superman. We're very excited about uh, Andy. You'll be in town. So hopefully we can do a live recording uh, I discuss that. And just as a reminder, we do a uh, Comic-Con fan X this week. Uh, Andy and I both have panels. So come see us. And if you are downtown, staying here, come hit us up at
1: the Monica. We'll do free wine hour. <laughs> You can come drink my free drinks because I won't be. Exactly. So. <laughs>
0: Anyways, have a great week and hail Satan and have a lovely afternoon. Punk ass tripping but it's alright Homie scored a key he's gonna fly Punk ass fly